0: Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts as we turn to God's word together. Father, as we come now, Lord, just to look at your word, Father, to see what you have to say to us. Father, we pray that we would have open ears, Lord, and hearts that are ready to receive. Father, just speak to us, we pray. And Lord, we ask also that we be challenged. Father, we don't want to just stay where we are, and Lord, every day go past with no change. Father, we want to grow. Lord, we have that great promise in your word that you who have begun a good work in us will continue it, until that day when we see Jesus Christ face to face. And so Lord, we just ask now that you continue that work. Lord, teach us this morning from your word. Lord, just take my words this morning. And Father, may it be from your heart, we pray. Lord, so that we would grow together. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are studying through the book of Galatians. As a fellowship, we study verse by verse through the Bible. Um, We've just finished going through the book of Second Kings. And now we've just moved into the New Testament to get a bit of a balanced diet. So the book of Galatians... Again, there wasn't a church as such in Galatia, there were a number of churches. Um, just to remind us and a little bit of a recap from what we looked at last week, this in uh, what we call modern day Turkey, this area here is the area of Galatia, and typically it's the south of Galatia that we're most interested in. So Paul's missionary journey, the first missionary journey that Paul goes on, he leaves Antioch, uh, he takes Barnabas with him, they go to Cyprus, various things take place, miracles, the governor of the island comes to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. They then travel across to the mainland, and then they go off up here uh, to another Antioch. There's two Antiochs, um, but there's Antioch here. And then they come down to three places, uh, to Lystra, Derby, and Iconium. And uh, there, various things happen. They get persecuted. The Jews really don't want to listen to them. They think they're bringing some sort of heresy. Paul uh, is dragged out of one of the cities and left for dead. But then he gets up and carries on. You know, most of us at that point would probably quit So say, this is just too much. I'm not going to give him more, Lord. I don't want, you know, if I'm beaten up for it, I'm not doing it. But Paul didn't. Because it was more than just a, a belief. It was real. Paul had met Jesus Christ. You know, and, and that's the one thing that really makes the difference. That when you meet Jesus Christ and you know him personally, it changes you. The Bible speaks of the power of the resurrection. What is that power? It's the power to change us. It makes us totally different. You can never be the same when you've met Jesus and you know that he has risen from the dead. What a transformation takes place. Regarding this, uh, this book, uh, Dr. Meryl Tenney said this, few books have had a more profound influence on the history of mankind than has this small tract for such it should be called. Christianity might have been just one more Jewish sect and the thought of the Western world might have been entirely pagan had it never been written. That's a staggering comment. When you think the influence that Christianity has had on the Western world, you think of all the universities and the colleges and you think all the education. And yes, some of that came from Greece. Greece was very much a a centre of learning, with great uh, philosophers and so on. but Almost all of the famous institutions that we know of today started off as Christian places of education. All the hospitals, pretty much, the care, places of care, almost entirely, came from Christians wanting to fulfil and teach the gospel and caring for people. You know, the Western world has been so transformed by Christianity and this belief in Jesus. And Dr. Merrill Tinney is saying that this book is pivotal in understanding why that happened and if what we're reading here hadn't have come to pass and Paul hadn't have been so bold as to write this sixth chapter as we have it now originally there were no chapters in there but this is short little book which really is very much a rebuke to the Christians in Galatia had Paul not have written that I wonder where the world would be now we read another quote by William Ramsey a very famous historian. He says it's a unique and marvellous letter which embraces in its six short chapters such a variety of venom and intense emotion as could probably not be paralleled in any other work. That's a, again quite a, a comment. So just to remind ourselves then as we jump into this of the, the real problem we've got and why Paul was writing, in this area of Galatia there were Jews who had left Israel. Partly due to the, the Romans, uh, the persecution they were experiencing under Rome, uh, and the problems they had at the time. This is prior to 70 AD, though. These Jews were trying to mix the simple teaching of grace with the law. You see, the Jews had grown up with the law of Moses. And now they hear this new teaching that Paul is bringing, and these churches that Paul had planted. And they start to try and blend it together. So blending improperly the kingdom message and the church message. Let me just clarify the difference between the two there. The kingdom message was the message that John the Baptist preached, which was basically, repent because the kingdom is at hand. The Jews believed that they were going to receive, that was going to be sent to them, a deliverer. That was going to free them from all the oppression, from all of their enemies. That was what the Jews expected. And even the disciples thought that that's what was going to happen. Of course, Jesus comes onto the scene, starts doing all these miracles, And of course they think Jesus is the one. Now, as it happens, Jesus is the one. But the problem was timing. You see, in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, we find there that first of all, Jesus had to come and die for the sins of the world. Then, when Jesus returns a second time, he will return to deliver Israel. He will set Israel free and deal with those that are oppressing them. The Bible speaks that all of the nations of the world will effectively gang up on Israel. Now it's a bit interesting because for 1900 years Israel didn't even have a homeland. And the Bible has always maintained this would be the case. And then Israel finally do, in 1948, get their land back again. Look at the problems. Look at the issues. I mean there's hardly a day goes by where you don't hear something on the news about Israel, about the problems going on in the Middle East. And these various claims that Israel have taken land that's not theirs and so on and so on. It just goes on and on and on. You know, the Bible says that Jerusalem will become a burdensome stone for all nations. Isn't that exactly what we see? You know, it really is a problem that, you know, so many American presidents and British prime ministers and so on and other world leaders have tried to address this issue in the Middle East and nobody can solve the problem. So anyway, that's the kingdom message, that Israel was going to be delivered from their enemies. And that's what they were expecting, a deliverer to come. But the church message is very different. The church message is one of salvation. Not deliverance from a physical enemy, but deliverance in a sense from a spiritual problem, that of sin. And the message that Paul was bringing is that you can't do anything to earn that you simply accept and receive, is called grace. So they were mixing these two things. And they said they told the person was saved by faith and by keeping the law. Well, that's mixing the two together. See, the only gospel that God approves and blesses is the gospel of the grace of God. Justification by faith in Jesus Christ alone. You see, it's not really a, a good... News, the gospel, the word gospel just means good news. It's not good news if I come and tell you that you've got these 613 commandments and you have to keep every single one of them if you stand a chance of being right with God. And then you start to look at just the first ten, we refer to as the ten commandments, that tell us that if we've ever lied, that if we've ever looked lustfully, If we've ever had hatred in our heart, if we've ever blasphemed and used God's name in an improper way, that's just four. Even just one occasion is enough enough to separate you from a holy God. And God effectively said that unless you can keep everything in the law, you are deserving of his judgment and wrath. That's not good news. But the good news is that Jesus came He paid for our sin on the cross. Everything we've ever thought, said and done. See, nobody's going to go to hell because of their sin. People will only go to hell because they reject Jesus Christ. It's an incredible thought that everything has been done. The price has been paid. In a sense, the ticket has been bought for you for eternal life. All you have to do is to reach out and claim it. If you refuse to reach out and claim it, you see people say, why would God send people to hell? He doesn't. People choose to go. People choose to go by rejecting the only solution to this problem we have. You know, if somebody would to go to a doctor, and the doctor were to diagnose them and tell them that, I'm sorry, you have this terrible disease. It's going to start to impact your eyesight, and then your hearing will suffer, and your muscles will start to waste, and gives you this long story of how you will start to decay and die. And then it says, but there's a cure. You wouldn't go, huh. Just one, that's a bit narrow-minded, isn't it? You see, you would reach out and grab it. But well, there is a cure to this disease that we call sin. It's a disease that's infected the whole of humanity. But Jesus came and he has provided the cure. So, we're not saved by making promises to God. It's not about us trying to do things, trying to be good, making resolutions to, to do this or to do that. So we're not saved by making promises to God, but by believing the promises that he has made to us. It's as simple as that. Look at some of the verses we looked at last week, just to remind ourselves. This is from John chapter 1. But as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God. In fact, you become adopted by God, part of his family. Even to them that believe on his name. That's it. So simple. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, this morning, do you want everlasting life? Do you want to go to heaven? It's simply just believe in Jesus. Not believe he exists, but believe that he died on the cross to save you from your sins. In the book of Acts, the Philippian jailer after this earthquake and the prison effectively crumbles around him, thinking that he's about to be killed by the Romans because he's allowed these people to escape, walks in and finds them all still there, falls on his knees and says to Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul doesn't say, right, well you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you must go to church every week and you must pray, you must do... No, he just says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So easy, isn't it? You see, sometimes the gospel becomes offensive because we want to do things. We feel that we'd like to contribute in some way, but you know that's an offense to God because there is nothing that you can do or bring that is worth more to God than the death of His own Son. We read in Romans ten: If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Isn't that wonderful? Paul's credentials, I mean, he was really qualified for the role that God had given him. You know, he wasn't seeking after popularity, and in writing this letter, he's not trying to win people over to like him. And he makes the point, and we saw this last week, that his revelation, the things that he's telling the Galatians now, was from Jesus Christ. It's not his opinion he's sharing. You know, we're not really interested in opinions. Every one of us has got opinions. What we're interested in is what God has to say. And that's what Paul was sharing. You see, Paul had a real zeal previously for the Jewish law to the point that he was trying to put Christians to death until he met Jesus. And he gave all of that away for something that was so much better. And then Paul had preached this grace, this gospel, before he'd met any of the other apostles. And later when he meets with them, they don't add anything to it. And they actually recognised his apostleship, his standing before God, that he had a right to do that which he was doing, that God himself had given him this message. So let's jump into chapter 2. Now what I'm just going to do is give you this kind of a running start because we need to read the last few verses of chapter 1 as we go into chapter 2 to make it make sense to us. So picking up in chapter 1 of Galatians, verse 15, and we read, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither went I up to Jerusalem, to them which were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia, and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, and abode with him fifteen days. But the other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother, Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God I lie not. Afterwards I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preaches the faith which he once destroyed. And they glorified God in me. So that's our lead into chapter 2. And then we pick up and read, Then, 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. Okay, so let me just give you a recap of what we've just seen there. Paul was converted somewhere in around about the summer of AD 32, Jesus being crucified. A lot of people think it was AD 32. Um, I'm pretty convinced that we can look at that some other time. It was AD 32 that Jesus was crucified. So in the summer of that year, Paul is converted and then starts preaching in Damascus. That's the first thing he does. But as you remember, we read this in the book of Acts, that the Jews then hatch a plot to try and kill him, and eventually he's lowered over the wall in a basket, and he escapes and flees from there, encouraged to get away by the Christians that were there. Now we find that he doesn't go and ask other people's opinion about what he should do, but he goes to Arabia. Why? Why go down to Arabia? Saudi Arabia as we know it today. Well, because I think he went to Mount Sinai, which is in Saudi Arabia. Not in the Sinai Peninsula, that's just a a fiction brought about by uh, Constantine's mother, Helena, who went around looking for things to name and she found a mountain and she said, well that will do, we'll call it Sinai. Uh, Seriously, that's basically what happened. And so typically it's become known as Sinai and it's referred to as the Sinai Peninsula because of that. But Mount Sinai, the real mountain is actually in Arabia, you can see it on Google Earth, you can actually see the mountain, it's got a blackened, burnt top. The rock has been tested. It's not volcanic rock. The rock is granite that's just been superheated and nobody can give you explanation as to why, apart from, of course, the Bible, which says that God came down in the cloud and there was a fire on the top of the mountain. So anyway, I think Paul went there. Why? Because that's where the law was given. Paul had grown up knowing the law. And so he goes to this place where the law was given. And there, I believe, he receives this incredible revelation from God. The salvation is by grace alone. And so eventually he comes back to Damascus. And then three years later, he goes to Jerusalem. But he only sees Peter and James. And the reason he goes is because he wants to check out with them that what he's saying is right. He's happy, of course, with what he's received because Jesus has told him. But he wants to just talk to these other leaders of the church and make sure, in a sense, they're all on the same page. Well, after that meeting, Paul then goes back to Syria and Cilicia and he stays there for a long time. He works as a tent maker. Previously he'd been part of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council. But of course he can't do that now that he's a Christian. So he ends up finding a new occupation to pay for himself. And while he's there, of course he's preaching the gospel during this period of time. And then Barnabas eventually, after this 14 years, goes to try and bring Paul to Jerusalem. They've all heard about Paul. They want to meet him. They want to talk with him. So Barnabas, this uh, individual goes down to this area or goes up geographically up to the area of Tarsus. And then finds Paul and gets Paul and takes him back to Jerusalem. Barnabas is an interesting character. His name means the son of consolation, or the son of encouragement. He certainly he's a very encouraging individual that we see. And he was a very key person in the early church. And he seems to have persuaded Paul. And I, I say persuaded because you'll see in a minute that there was more to that. But Paul does leave Tarsus and goes to Jerusalem to meet the other apostles. Barnabas, we're told in Acts chapter 11, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. And Paul wants to take Titus with him, this young believer, this Gentile. uh seemingly as a test case to see how the Christians in Jerusalem are going to react when he brings a Gentile into their midst. So, Galatians 2 verse 2 says, And I went up, this is to Jerusalem, by revelation. Notice that. So it wasn't just that Barnabas said, Come on Paul, you, you, you should come with us. God had clearly showed Paul, now we don't know quite how or which way, but God has showed Paul that he was to go. You see, it's interesting. A lot of times we just step out and do things. Paul seems to be one of those individuals that would always check with God first. That's a good idea. Yeah, one of the, the big problems we read about in the, the book of Joshua was that Joshua signs a peace treaty with the Gibeonites who and neighbors, who... Because simply they they didn't check with God first. They assumed, they they believed the lie that these Gibeonites had travelled a long, long, long way and they were from a far country and so on. And actually they were on their doorstep. And Joshua should never really have signed that treaty in the first place. But he did it because he didn't check with God. A lot of mistakes we make in life is because we try and do things our own way without realising that we have a God that is interested in every detail of our lives. Always worth going to God and checking first. Paul, by revelation, agrees to go with Barnabas. And we read, And communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. And notice what he says. But privately to them which were of reputation, so these are the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. So, again, Paul goes with Barnabas not because us asked, but because God revealed to him. Psalm 37 verse 23 says, The steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord. Something worth remembering. But notice also that he goes up, first of all, privately. So he has kind of a private audience with these leaders of the church. So with John, with James, with others that would have been around at that time. Maybe many of the other disciples were still in Jerusalem. And so this little small group, Paul speaks to them. Why? Well, first of all, note the humility of Paul and the respect that he has and shows to those that were, in a sense, older in the faith than he was. You see, he doesn't go barging in and saying, this is what you must do. He goes humbly before them. Such an important thing and a character that sadly is often lacking today. You see, we have to remain teachable. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 says, speaks of the qualities of a servant of the Lord. And one of the things it says, apt to teach. What it means is, you should be teachable. You should be able to learn. Not so convinced in your own mind that your opinion is right, that you're not willing to listen. And Paul, even though he's received this revelation from Jesus, is still open to the fact that he can still learn more. There are many things he doesn't yet fully understand. And he goes with this wonderful, humble, teaching attitude. And then we read, but neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Now this was one of the issues, of course, that Paul Paul was probably concerned about and wondering about. You see, this seems to be the reason that Paul has brought Titus along. What are they going to do? Are they going to say to this Gentile, well, you've got to be like a Jew? Or are they going to... Stick with the gospel of grace saying, no, there's nothing you have to do to be saved. Those things that were under Judaism don't apply to us anymore. It isn't that because of false brethren unawares brought in who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. So Paul emphasised that there are a real problem because there were these individuals who wanted to come and Corrupt in a sense the things that were, were being said. You see, these are the reasons that Paul meets with them privately. One, to ensure that he'd not run in vain, to make sure that he was on the right track himself. You see that humility there. To avoid any open disagreements that could lead to disunity. It's, it's really important. You know, He goes and speaks to the leaders of the church. He doesn't start just chatting amongst anybody that will listen. Trying to get people on his side. Sadly, that's something that we often do. You know, something happens and we we end up trying to get people to agree with us. And Paul doesn't do that. He goes straight to, in a sense, the, the key people to address this issue, to make sure that we're on the same page. And also these spies who would unwittingly bring them into bondage. Now, I, I don't think these Judaizers, as we spoke about last week, were necessarily wicked, evil or malicious people. They were probably very, very sincere. But they hadn't understood the whole gospel of grace. They hadn't understood the message. They just loved the law of Moses and saw that this, being, what was being preached, was twisting it and they didn't like that. Paul says, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour. In other words, we did not listen to those people. That the truth of the gospel might continue with you. You see, Paul would not tolerate anything that would lead people away from the simplicity of the gospel. But of These who seem to be somewhat, he's talking about these individuals, whatsoever they were, it makes no matter to me. God accepts no man's person. (laughs) Paul is say, you know, I'm not really bothered who they were or who they think they were or how important, you know, what kind of hat they wore or how many stripes they had, so on. For they who seem to be somewhat in in a conference added nothing to me. See, Paul wasn't intimidated by man. Paul knew quite clearly that in Christ we are all one and we are all equal. Interesting, at the end of the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul lists his credentials in detail to show that he was well qualified to talk on the things he was talking on. But he doesn't want to boast. Paul's not that kind of individual. He says, but when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision, this is speaking now of the other apostles, The gospel of the uncircumcision, speaking of the Gentiles, was committed to me, and that the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, and that's to the Jews, for he that wrought effectively in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. See, the same spirit that was working in Paul was working in Peter as well. Paul has got this mission to go to the Gentile believers, and Peter and the other disciples to go to the Jews. Both of the same message, same spirit, but responsible for a different sphere of ministry in a sense. And we read, And when James Cephas, another name for Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship. That we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. So, they simply agree that Paul and Barnabas are going to go to the Gentiles... And that they would go to the Jews. See, note that Paul is the only one given the responsibility to go to the Gentiles. Note also that God will also call you to your own people. See, Paul is going, in a sense, to the people he'd known. He'd grown up initially in a Gentile culture. And often God will call out to the people that are close to us. Paul and John and sorry, Peter, James and John and so on, they they go to their own people. If you remember when Doug was here a few weeks ago, um, the pastor from Calvary Chapel down in Hastings, he was speaking on the Holy Spirit and the way the Holy Spirit will enable us, give us the power to go and to be a witness. That's really what we're called to do. And first of all, the gospel, we remember, was taken to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and then now we see through Paul to the ends of the earth. Well, As Doug said at the time, you know, God will call you first of all to speak to your family. Those that are right by, by your side, those that are close to you. Maybe your colleagues, those you work with, you spend a lot of time with. And then maybe beyond that. You know, it's interesting that God doesn't often call us to great and wonderful tasks that we're just so far out of our depth. He calls us to things that we can do. And He will enable us and give us the strength. Just want to clarify this point again. Then, so God, I believe, never meant for Paul to belong to this group of twelve, the apostles as we know them. See, their ministry was primarily to the Jews, and it was related to the kingdom. You see, they still believed, and they, quite rightly so, that Jesus would be the one to deliver them from their enemies. Paul's ministry was to the Gentiles, and was related to the ministry, to the mystery of the church, if you like, the one body. The twelve received their call from Christ on earth because their message presented the hope of Israel's earthly kingdom. Paul received his call from heaven because his message presented the heavenly calling of the church in Christ. It's a lovely distinction between the two. See, there were twelve apostles associated with the twelve tribes. Many references to that in scripture. Paul, of course, was just one man. He was a Jew with a Gentile citizenship, and he represented the one body of Christ. So many of these types and shadows that we see in Scripture, where God does things using examples to help us understand. We carry on in verse ten, only that they, uh, only, only they would should sorry, only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. So the one thing that is mentioned to Paul is, you know, yeah, please go ahead, go to the Gentiles, preach the gospel, but please remember the poor. Now, that's not generally the poor everywhere, although there are other scriptures that allude to the fact that we should show compassion and so on. But this is specifically to the poor of the church in Jerusalem. So we've got a two-pronged attack. See, for a few years God had revealed the door opening to the Gentiles through Peter. Remember that situation back in Acts chapter 10, where Peter had gone up to, um uh, to Joppa. He was, well, so he'd revealed the, the message there, and then he'd gone up to Cornelius and then had revealed or seen that God was intending on bringing the Gentiles in. This kind of net in a sense, dragnet gathering in all who would come. All who would respond to this message. So, the church had already understood That the Gentiles were to be brought in, but up until this point, they hadn't really done anything about it. So Paul is now ordained of God as the one to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. Again, they requested, as we said a moment ago, that the missionaries to the Gentile world would remember the Jewish believers, and especially those at Jerusalem. They were notoriously poor, they'd given up their homes and their possessions and so on um, for the sake of the church, so the church would begin and get started and so on. But there's a collection that Paul will take up later from churches in the the Gentile world and take back to Jerusalem. So Paul does remember this request. Now we get into another interesting section because we read, but when Peter was come to Antioch, so this is a little bit further on in time, I withstood him to the face Because he was to be blamed. So, an issue occurs and Paul stands up. Now, Proverbs 27 reminds us that open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Now, it's good if somebody is rebuked in love. You can't just let things fester and go on. See, Paul was absolutely right to bring this rebuke. I mean, there's no way Paul could have just left the situation. We'll explain the details of the situation in a minute. But I want you to consider the possible outcomes. See, one is that Peter would accept and acknowledge his error. The second one is that Peter would reject Paul's rebuke and refuse his counsel. You see, the first one would lead to unity and a furtherance of the gospel. The second one would have led to an unnecessary division within the church. See, sometimes when people are rebuked, it is important, it is necessary, but it's down to that one that is being rebuked, to be willing to listen. For before that, certain came from James, this is now the problem being explained to us, certain men had come down from Jerusalem, from James... St. Peter did eat with the Gentiles, but when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them that were of the circumcision, fearing the Jews. So, if you remember that action of the council that they had back in Acts chapter 15, had opened the way for fellowship to exist now between the Jews and the Gentiles. Up until this point, the Jews had had such a low opinion of Gentiles. But now, because of that situation that had occurred... And this meeting that the church had had, they agreed that yes, actually, the Gentiles are the same as us. So Peter was glad to fellowship with them, right up until, all of a sudden, these certain men, these people had come. And you know what it's like. You're standing in a crowd of people, and suddenly somebody comes that maybe you respect or revere, and you kind of move away because you think, oh, maybe I don't want to be seen with those people anymore. Well, that's exactly what, what happened here these certain men. Now Peter incidentally had already been rebuked by these men back in Acts chapter 11 when he'd gone and up to Cornelius and come back some of the Jews gave him a really hard time eventually they accepted what he said but Peter now maybe thinking back to that situation decides that he's going to just separate a little bit from the Gentiles, he's going to sit with the Jews now Proverbs 29, 25 tells us that the fear of man brings a snare and doesn't it just, when you are more fearful of man than you are of God. Notice fearing there. So the other Jews dissembled likewise with him. See, see, Peter did it, and then the others kind of followed suit. Insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with a dissimulation. Now, that word simply means hypocrisy. It was absolute hypocrisy. You see, and we need to remember that none of us is immune either from hypocrisy, and we need to be very careful. How these things get in and affect us. Let's just carry on. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, lives after the manner of the Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as the Jews do? See, what's at stake here? Well, Peter was a Jew who'd started to live as Gentile, enjoying the liberty of not being bound by the law anymore. And that's why he was quite happy to sit at the table with the Gentiles, to have that companionship with them. But now, having gone that far, and then breaking it off, he was unwittingly comparing the Gentile believers to live as Jews. You see, in a sense, the body language, what he was really saying, was to imply that the Jews were more righteous because of circumcision, because of the dietary laws, because of all the laws they kept. And that presents a real problem. You see, if the Gentile believers did this, they would undermine what had been affirmed at Jerusalem, that the gospel is by grace, that we don't do anything. See, the church had decided that no such burden was to be laid on the Gentile believers. See, the whole principle of grace here is at stake. The logical outcome of Peter's conduct was to make the Jews, or to make Jews out of the Gentile Christians. By separating himself and putting this kind of distinction between them, Paul, uh, Peter was really saying, well, the Jews are better than the Gentiles. We're more righteous and more holy. Because we do these things. Whereas the Gentiles, of course, didn't keep the law. They don't do those things. That would, have, of course, led you is know, The whole situation would have forced, in a sense, the creation of a, a Gentile church alongside a Jewish church. And break the unity of the body of Christ. And Paul, clearly, as he sees this, wasn't going to allow it. The whole truth of the gospel was at stake at this point. By the way, just an aside... The Catholic Church has this idea of papal supremacy, that the Pope is above everybody. I think here, this is Peter that's making this mistake. And you know, If Peter was the rock, as the Catholic Church claims, upon which the Church was to be built, it starts on a pretty dodgy foundation, doesn't it? Peter making quite a big, serious error of judgment here. Peter, by the way, knew of no such supremacy doctrine. And he himself classes himself alongside other believers at the same position. He doesn't exalt himself. Peter, of course, was spirit-filled, but he still made mistakes, as do we. Paul didn't spare Peter's feelings, though. Leviticus 19, 17 says, thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and suffer sin, sorry, and not suffer sin upon him. Point of that verse is, you know, you know, much better dealing with a problem than getting rid of it, dealing with it, than letting it fester, letting it carry on. If Paul hadn't jumped in here, well, what would have been the result? So then we read, We, who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Now Paul, classing himself as he quite rightly is here, as a Jew. Look at the the context. We, speaking of Paul and the Jews, who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Now that phrase is not saying that the Gentiles were habitually sinning, but typically because they didn't have the law, they didn't have the the things of the law that will supposedly give them some degree of righteousness, they're classed as sinners. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, it's quite simple what Paul is really saying is, look, think about how we are saved. We are saved as the Jews, he's speaking here to Peter and the others. We've been saved by grace. We don't have to do anything. Just by believing. So why now do we expect these Gentiles to have to do something? He's saying it's so inconsistent. And then we have this wonderful phrase. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. What a powerful statement and so, so true see, the Old Testament itself also supports this, that justification does not come from the works of the law. Now, if you ask most people, are you a good person? People might reply, they keep the Ten Commandments. (laughs) Well, that's strike one, because none of us do. We all know in our hearts, every one of us here this morning has at some point lied. Just on that basis alone, we've blown it. If we break one law, we're guilty of breaking them all, is what James tells us. But we've broken probably every single one of those Ten Commandments. You know, we then might bring it down a level and say, well, I'm as good as the next person. Don't we love to do that? Don't we love to justify ourselves by looking at somebody else? You know, ladies, you won't understand this, but for, for blokes, occasionally we're driving down the motorway, we go over the speed limit a little bit. But we justify it because somebody comes past us. So that's okay because, you know, well, they're worse than we are. But don't we do that so often? We justify ourselves by somebody else's standard. Well, unfortunately, you're not going to be judged by somebody else's standard. You'll be judged by God's standard. And then we may revert to, that. well, I'm doing the best I can. This is all I can do. You, know, you can't. It's not fair, you know. Well, again, <laughs> that's, again, not good enough. God will still judge us by his righteous standard. In Galatians 2, verse 17, we pick up, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners. Is therefore Christ a minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroy, I make myself a transgressor. Now let me just try and unpack that for you. Again, Paul speaking as a Jew to the Jews that were there. Okay? Let me just paraphrase that. If we Jews, in seeking to be justified by faith in Christ, become like the Gentiles, i.e. the sinners without the law of Moses, Is it therefore Christ who makes us sinners? Of course, no, it's not. Christ isn't making them sinners. But rather, it is by putting ourselves, as Jews fully saying, again under the law, that we are found to be transgressors because we cannot keep the law. He's saying we are far worse if we try and come back under the law because we will be guilty. Now, the underlying question here is, how am I to be made righteous? That's the question really that Paul is getting to. And as we carry on, in the weeks to come we'll see Paul address that fully. So we know that Paul's rebuke accomplished its purpose because one of the last admonitions Peter wrote was to the believers that they should read Paul's letters to find God's truth about this present age. In 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16 we read an account that the long-suffering our Lord is salvation even as our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given unto him has written unto you as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. Okay, Now, Paul is saying, has written unto you, written unto the Jews. Okay, They are the Hebrews. Now, this is one of the reasons many think that Paul is the author of the letter of Hebrews to the Christians, to the Jewish believers. Because we have this reference here that Paul has written. Now, if it's not the Hebrews, then there's some of the letters that we don't have, but that aside. as also all his epistles speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood. Okay, Paul sometimes writes things that we have to dig into, try and understand what he's really clearly saying. That which they are unlearned and unstable rest or twist as they do also the other scriptures. Notice that Peter puts Paul's writing as part of the scriptures unto their own destruction. Paul and Barnabas very quickly, well, they remained friends. Because remember Barnabas gets caught up in this whole mess here as well. they remained friends, that's very clear from 1 Corinthians 9. But eventually they part company over an issue regarding John Mark. um, Because John Mark left them in their first missionary journey and so on. Uh, Sadly there's no record of Paul and Barnabas actually reconciling after the event. We don't know, maybe they did, but it's not recorded for us. Then we get, For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. You see, the law, it's been said before, can drive a man to the cross, but no further. See, we are now freed from the demands of the law. All the things that the law said no longer apply if you're in Christ. You see, ultimately in Christ we are free from the curse of the law, namely death. Romans 7 tells us, verse 1, "Know you not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, "'how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives.'" For the woman which has a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she's loosed from the law of, of her husband. So we understand that, that if you're married to somebody and you die, that covenant, that agreement, that law that was in place, no longer has any power. Once one partner has died, the other partner would then be free to marry somebody else. So then, if while her husband lives, she'd be married to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she's free from the law, so that she's no adulteress, though she'd be married to another man. The law can only chase you once you're, whilst you're alive. You know, whatever crime is committed, the law can only punish you once you're alive. This is the point that Paul is trying to make here. You see, the law is holy. It's God's righteous standard. It's holy because God is holy. The law principally addresses the attitude of the human heart. It's not just what you do, but it's what you think. You see, the heart we're told in Scripture is incurably sinful. So God will judge all men by his righteous standard. And the problem is nobody would be able to stand against God's righteous standard. But there's an escape clause. And it's simply this. The law only has power over the living. This is why we read this wonderful verse. Carrying on, verse 20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is one of the key verses in the New Testament, in the whole Bible, in all honesty. And it's really the point of the book of Galatians. If you get this, you understand what Paul is trying to say. You see, Paul is going to go on to expound more about living by grace. It's one area that most Christians still struggle with and they're not familiar with these details. But again, Paul is saying that if we die to that old way of living, if we are born again, this phrase that we so often use as Christians really comes from John's Gospel, chapter 3. If we're born again, it means we have died. Our life starts again when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. No longer does the law that God had given us, his standard, apply to us. Because we're told that Jesus clothes us with his righteousness so when God looks at us he sees us not as we really are but he sees us as Christ perfected you see the believer is not under the law but under grace we are loose from the law we're delivered from the law Christ we're told is the end of the law we are free from the law the law as I said can't punish a man twice Colossians two fourteen. it speaks about a certificate of debt. When a Roman prisoner was put in prison, once they paid their their time, once they paid their due, they would be released. They'd be given a certificate. It would be stamped to telestai. It's the Greek word. It means paid in full. That's what Jesus cried out on the cross. He said, "It is finished." That's how it's translated. What he actually stated in the Greek was to telestai. means paid in full. Our debt is paid in full. All of your sin is paid in full. All you have to do is to believe in Jesus Christ. It's so simple. It's so easy. You see, the church is now referred to as the body of Christ. We start this new life. We're part of this wonderful body. All of this God planned before the foundation of the world. Back in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, there was a situation where somebody went out and picked up sticks on the Sabbath day, which was prohibited. This individual was stoned to death because of that, because he broke the law. But in Luke chapter fifteen we have a son who's rebellious, he goes away, what happens to him? Well, under grace he's welcomed back with open arms. You see the difference, you see the contrast. In Leviticus chapter twenty, verse ten, an adulteress we're told, should be stoned. In John chapter eight, a woman that's called in the act of adultery, Jesus says, Go and sin no more. You see the difference? You see the law is perfect which is why imperfect men cannot keep it. The law is holy, which is why sinners are condemned by it. The law is just, therefore cannot show mercy to the guilty. The law prohibits, but grace invites and gives. The law condemns the sinner. Grace redeems the sinner. The law reveals sin. Grace atones for sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. By grace is redemption from sin. The law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The law demands obedience. Grace bestows and gives power to obey. That's such an important point. That grace gives you the power to obey. It's not by your own effort. The law says do and do not. Grace says, it's done. The law says, continue to be holy. Grace says, it is finished. The law curses. Grace blesses. The law slays the sinner. Grace makes the sinner alive. The law shuts every mouth before God. Grace opens the mouth to praise God. The law condemns the best man. Grace saves the worst man. The law says pay what you owe. Grace says I freely forgive you all. The law says the wages of sin is death. Grace says the gift of God is eternal life. The law says the soul that sins it shall die. Grace says believe and live. The law was done away in Christ. But grace abides forever. The law puts us under bondage. Grace sets us in the liberty of the sons of God. This morning you're either on one side of that or the other. You're either trying to get right with God by your own efforts, or even rejecting God, whatever. But you're still in the same place. You'll be judged by a standard that you could never keep. Or, by God's grace, you've crossed over. And now through Christ's death in your place, And then through baptism, which is not something you have to do, but it's something that normally you want to do, to symbolize that I've died to that. Those old demands no longer apply. And now we have a new life in Christ. And everything that's listed under grace is yours. Freely. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to try harder. You just have to believe and accept it. As we go on in the weeks to come, we'll be looking more about grace and how grace gives us that power to live as Jesus wants us to live. But again, even that, we'd have to strive for. This chapter concludes and it says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Just simply saying, <laughs> the law could never make us righteous. Jesus didn't die in vain. He died because under the law there was no way to God. So Jesus died to make a way. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the things that we learn. Father, we just pray you speak to us. Help these things that we've heard this morning to be applied to our own lives. Lord, may we not hide from them or run from them, but Lord, to recognize that we have a choice. Either to live by our own efforts, our strivings, our trying to do things right. Or Lord, we died that old life. We believe in Jesus, we become born again, and we live a new life of liberty, of freedom, of grace. Jesus, we thank you for all of these things. Lord, just impress them upon our hearts now, that we would continue to grow in knowledge and in that grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.